You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Welcome to Sojourn. Um, My name is Marshall, one of the pastors here. It's my uh, joy and honor to proclaim the Word of God from 1 Samuel this morning. If you're a visitor, uh, just reiterate the welcome that Reed gave you. We are glad that you're here and would highly encourage you uh, to take any of those steps uh, towards connecting here. We do pray that this place will be um, known more for being a people to belong to uh, than simply having a, a fun event to attend on a Sunday. And so we'd love to get to know you in any of those uh, contexts. Um, and I'm excited this morning to jump into uh, a new series. And so um, as we talk about revival, there's essentially four words that I want us to remember. That if you walk away with nothing else this morning, um, when we define revival... It is, at its core, the ordinary grace of God at work in extraordinary measure. So, ordinary grace, extraordinary measure. When you think of revival, that's all you need to think about. So, um, well, still listen to what I'm going to say for the next few minutes. But, um, but that is, at its core, what revival is. The ordinary of gra- grace of God operating in extraordinary measure in our time. And so, uh, some of us may be asking... A question, which I think is a, a good question. Um, why, why would we talk about revival, and why would we talk about it in extended terms? Meaning, we're going to spend the next five weeks or so talking about this particular topic. And the the simple answer, um, meaning the one sentence answer, is is this: uh, If revival is the ordinary grace of God at work in extraordinary measure, meaning at work in abundant ways then for some of us in the room, maybe we walked in this morning and we said, I'm in a place where I need that, right? Maybe it's been a season of difficulty. Maybe we're walking in a season of particular brokenness. Maybe we've been in a really long season of brokenness. And so we say, oh man, I could use the grace of God in extra measure this morning. And some of us may not find ourselves in that situation exactly individually, but it's not only something we should desire as individuals, it's something we should desire corporately for both our souls and for our churches to be revived, to experience the ordinary grace of God, but in an extraordinary measure, that He would pour Himself out in greater ways to us, that we might know Him and love Him and enjoy Him in ways which we previously may not have enjoyed Him. And so let's pray, and then we will talk a little bit more about that. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you again for the opportunity uh, just to be gathered together as your people, God. And I thank you, Lord, that um, being counted among your people is not something that we've done or something that we've said or some lists that we've checked off, but Father, it's your pure grace expressed to us in the gift of your Son, Jesus. And so I pray that uh, for those of us who have called upon the name of Jesus this morning, you would be near to us and that you would be drawing us closer, not only to you, but to one another, so that you might be glorified through your people. And I do ask this morning, Lord, that you would bring revival to us, that your ordinary grace would be expressed extraordinarily, not only to us, but through us. We pray all of this 
in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Okay, so we already have a working definition of revival this morning, but I do want to give us some more context. I want to flesh that phrase out. And so I think something that's helpful, though, before we jump into positively what revival is, is to talk a little bit about what revival isn't. Because I think that um, depending on our history with the church, this word, like Reed just said, might have some baggage for us. Maybe revival for us was that one week out of the summer that we set up the tent outside in the parking lot and we sing hymns until someone gives up and gets baptized. That was, that was mine. Or maybe for some of us it's, oh, revival? That's what those weird Pentecostals do. People start drinking weird stuff, and they're running up and down the aisles, and they're talking gibberish, and I don't want what that is, right? And I think that um, something helpful to note, and what we'll come to understand as we walk through the scriptures over the next couple of weeks, is that revival isn't something that you can just schedule, right? If it was, then maybe we would have just scheduled it instead of doing a sermon series on it. Right? It's not something that happens on June 22nd at 4 p.m. because we said it was going to happen June 22nd at 4 p.m. It's not a puzzle that if you're clever enough, you can solve. Right? It's not something that can be strategized. Right? There's no manual for it, although some might argue otherwise. So let's go back to our statement. Right? Revival, plain and simple, is the ordinary grace of God at work in extraordinary measure. So what's God's ordinary grace, right? What's God's ordinary grace? Well, God, by His grace, through the work of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, convicts us of sin. He converts those of us who are not yet converted to Him. He assures us of our salvation. And He sanctifies us. He makes us more like Jesus, right? Quite simply, that's the work of the Spirit that Jesus came to enable and empower by His sacrifice on our behalf. That we would be convicted of sin, that we would convert, that we would know Him, that we would turn to Him for what only He can provide in salvation, and that then we would be encouraged in that new identity that we've been given, and that we would grow in grace. The ordinary grace of God. These are the things that the Father does through the work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, normally, but in revival, they're experienced in extraordinary measure. So revival is the Christian life in greater abundance for a season that's impossible to predict, perform, or prolong. Now God has done this time and time again throughout history in His pleasure and in His due time. In fact, if we wanted to sort of understand the New Testament in, in one way, is the, the New Testament is essentially revival literature. That that's what we're seeing play out before us, that God's grace through the work of Jesus falls upon a normal and ordinary people doing the normal and ordinary work of God, but again, in extraordinary measures, so much so that you and I sit here today. So that's what revival is. 
Now, what happens practically in revival, right? Practically, when God's grace, his ordinary grace, is experienced in extraordinary measure, what happens? Well, essentially three things happen during revival. Number one, sleepy Christians wake up. Now, what, what do I mean by sleepy Christians? I think there's any, any number of things that can lead to a Christian experiencing what I like to call a sleepy Christian existence. Maybe we're sleepy because we've given ourselves over to sin for so long that there's a hardness of heart built up in us that although we know about the saving grace of God through Jesus by the Spirit, we're not operating out of the saving grace of God through Jesus by the Spirit. We become dull. There's a numbness, right? There's a routine to all of it because we're actually more enamored with something else. Or maybe we're sleepy because we've fallen into doubt, right? The claims of the faith for us, again, have become something that maybe is weak or trite or something that um, we don't necessarily long to believe in anymore. Maybe we're sleepy because we've become comfortable with making no progress, right? Now, these should sound somewhat linked, right? And that these are all operations of God's grace. It's God's grace that convicts us of sin. If we're not walking in God's grace. It's God's grace that assures us in the midst of our doubt, right? We're not walking in God's grace. It's God's grace that progresses us through the Christian life, right? That sanctifies us, that makes us more like Jesus, right? It's not our work, it's His grace. But in revival, that ordinary grace of God becomes extraordinary. It wakes those Christians up. It convicts them of that long-standing sin in their lives. It comforts them in the midst of their doubts. And it spurs them on towards love and towards good deeds, to becoming more and more like Jesus. That's the first thing that happens. Sleepy Christians wake up in revival. Here's the second thing that happens in revival is that nominal Christians in the church get converted. Now some of you are going, now wait a minute, what, what do you mean by nominal Christian? I mean Christian in name only. Someone who would claim to be a Christian but who is not in fact Christian because again they have not experienced the grace of God. Here's a helpful way to understand nominal. There's a, uh, a study that uh, a Christian ministry called Ligonier does every, I think every year. Anyway, at some interval, they do this study. It's called the State of Theology, where essentially they try to discern uh, the direction of theological religious beliefs in the United States. Now, let me just read two things, two stats from it, and this will help us understand nominal Christianity. This year, 2016, this past year, in the State of Theology survey, 46% of self-identified evangelicals either agree or somewhat agree with the following statement. Okay, so essentially half of self-identified evangelicals agree or somewhat agree with this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That means that almost half of American evangelicals don't meet the lowest bar for the term evangelical. 
Furthermore, 36% agree or somewhat agree with this statement. By the good deeds that I do, I contribute to earning my place in heaven. Over one-third of self-identified evangelicals, evangelical meaning someone who, whose root is in the gospel, right? The, the evangel, the good news of Jesus, believe that their work contributes to earning their place in heaven. Brothers and sisters, that is nominal Christianity if there is such a thing. A Christian who believes that Jesus is not the only way, truth, and life, and a Christian who believes that it is in part due to their moralizing that they will arrive in heaven. Those Christians, in a period of revival, come to know the real Jesus. Not the cultural Jesus, not the Jesus that was passed down to them in ritual, but the real Jesus, the living Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And finally, what happens in revival is that hard-to-reach people are dramatically brought to faith. People that you would never expect to come to faith, the hardest of the hard, turn miraculously to Jesus. That's what happens practically when the ordinary grace of God pours itself out extraordinarily upon a people for a season. And so, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I want that. And I don't just want it because of all the effects that it could have on everyone else. Because if I'm honest this morning, brothers and sisters, there are parts of me that are sleepy and need to be woken up. And brothers and sisters, it is frightening to me to think that half of self-identified evangelicals don't believe in Jesus. We have a, a whole people surrounding us that believe they have what is true and they don't and there's nothing that we can do about it because it's God's grace that brings those people to salvation. And there are people in this neighborhood that if I'm honest, when I'm walking around in my flesh, I think there's no hope. I think there's no hope for them. But we serve a God of revival. A God who not only wants to wake up sleepy Christians, who not only wants to save nominal Christians, but wants to bring unto himself those who are at the furthest reaches of the depths of their sin. And he wants to make them alive in Jesus. And the good news this morning, brothers and sisters, is that he can. We can't, but he can. And that's the problem, right? Is that I can't wake myself up. We can't save ourselves and we can't save other people. We need God to do it. And so, revival, much like salvation, as an ordinary grace of God, experienced extraordinarily, is something we cannot manufacture. We can't make revival happen. So let's just be clear about that. But 
we must not do nothing in the name of God's sovereignty. So the question becomes this, how do we seek something we can't create? How do we seek revival knowing that we can't bring it to pass? That there's no box of tricks, that there's no power inherent within us that can make this extraordinary outpouring of God's grace come to pass. Well, there's a godly woman in the book of 1 Samuel that is going to show us the way forward. And her name is Hannah. And so let's set up her situation as we jump into this prayer that she prays uh, before us. So here's what's happening in, in Israel at the time. Now remember, we're in the Old Testament, so these are all the books right, written before Jesus came, the books of the Bible written before Jesus came, and they tell us the story of this nation, this people Israel, right, that God said would be his people, right, set apart for his glory. Now, what we come to know at the end of Judges, which immediately precedes Samuel, um, is that Israel is a spiritually dead people. God has given judges to rule over Israel, but to our utter lack of surprise, they mess it up, right? Basically, everything from here to here, if you haven't read it yet, is Israel messing it up and God continuing to be faithful to Israel. And so here they are again. They are in a, a, a long period of declension, right? The, the kingdom is divided. And at the end of the book of Judges, the book ends with these words. It says, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's where Israel is right now, right? They're at the very bottom. There's no king. The judges have failed to rule over Israel in a way that brought life and revival and refreshing to this people, right? They've fallen from grace. To the degree that now everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And it's into this fray that God sends Hannah. Now what's Hannah's situation? I'll give you just a brief overview of chapter 1 so that we know what leads us to chapter 2. In chapter 1 we learn that Hannah is the first of Elkanah's two wives. Now, some of us may go, oh, okay, what's this whole two wives thing, you know? Well, Elkanah is an insignificant man, except that he finds himself in this story. He's not rich or powerful. He's just a guy, but he is a guy who needs an heir. Someone to pass on the care of the family to. In this day, that was very, very important. And so Elkanah takes a second wife by the name of Peninnah because Hannah is infertile. She can't give him that. And that was very problematic in these times. And we see very sweetly that Elkanah loves Hannah, that he cherishes her. In fact, it, it's quite obvious that he loves her more than his second wife. She just can't give him the air that he requires. So Hannah, by all accounts at this time, would be a woman scorned. 
an unimportant woman, married to an unimpressive man with whom she was unable to bear children. She was powerless and irrelevant in the grand scheme of the nation of Israel. But Hannah pleads with God. Right? In chapter 1, verse 7, it tells us that she went up to the house often and she would weep and not eat and she would pray bitterly, it says in verse 10. She was deeply distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly and she vowed a vow to the Lord. Right? In verse 14, we find out that she's praying in such a way so almost violently that the priest who is at the temple with her thinks she's drunk. Right? Verse 13 says that Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard, and so Eli took her to be a drunken woman. In verse 15, Hannah responds, she says, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. She's desperate. She's desperate for a thing that she can't create. And so what is God's answer to her faithful, ongoing prayers? Well, verse 19 says this. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife. I don't need to explain that, right? And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So God, by his grace and in his time, right? In due time, not immediately, but in due time, allows Hannah to conceive and to bear a son. Her prayers are answered. Now, at first glance, we may think that a simple personal prayer has been answered here, right? That happens. It could be coincidental for all we know. But there is something larger at work. You see, Hannah's son Samuel will become the last judge of Israel. And he will be the one who will usher in the monarchy to Israel. Through him, Saul, and more importantly, King David will come to rule over not a divided Israel and Judah, but a united Israel. And Israel will experience a corporate revival, a national revival. The grace of God invited by the prayers of Hannah, will come upon Israel in an extraordinary measure because of her prayer. So to answer the question that we posed earlier, how do we seek a thing we can't create? Seeking revival starts with prayer. It starts with faithful, pleading, weeping, soul-pouring prayer, and more prayer. <laughs> What you'll notice is that once Hannah gets what she wants, she doesn't stop praying, does she? We get to chapter 2 and it starts immediately with what? Hannah's prayer. 
so revival, brothers and sisters, is both for the broken and for the victorious. And we see Hannah in both situations here. And in both situations, she goes to him. So let's read her prayer of victory and see what it has for us. This is what it says. Verse 1, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, and my mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. God has seen Hannah's cares, and He has intervened on her behalf. Now I want to focus in on one little phrase from verse 1 before we read the rest of it. When she says, My horn is exalted. I want us to understand this image because it's important. Now, Hannah isn't carrying a horn, nor does she have one on her head. So, what does she mean? She's giving us an image of victory. The horn of an animal in this time would be its crown of glory, right? That after goring an enemy into submission, it would lift its horns high. Hannah is saying that her fortunes have been restored, that her victory is here in this work that God has done. And then she expands by saying, I rejoice in your salvation. Her heart is bursting with joy. Why? Because God heard her cry and He intervened. Brothers and sisters, quite simply, this is the posture of revival. Faithful pleading and fervent praising. There's a fullness that has come over Hannah that is more than just having a prayer answered positively. It's the very presence of God in and with her. Let's keep reading. There's none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren one has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes." And inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. Obviously Hannah doesn't think that this is any kind of coincidence. No, she is giving us an overt and wonderful and glorious statement of confidence in the Lord. Hannah is widening her prayers. What was a personal request explodes into a greater telling of all God's ability, not only to do what she had requested, but to do everything that He had promised in all of the world. This prayer is all about God's sovereignty to do what He's planned, which makes the end of the prayer interesting. What does verse 10 say? Let me read verse 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. 
Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And here's that phrase again. Exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah's prayer in this moment essentially turns prophetic. In that it's a prayer that tells of a king that would come and revive Israel. And this is interesting because at this time, as of yet, Israel has no king. But this king that would come, his horn would be exalted. He would be victorious. Now, if we're familiar with the Bible, we know that Saul and more importantly, David will become king in Israel shortly after this. And Israel will experience a measure of victory, right? They will cast off their oppressors. They'll become united as a kingdom. And the glory of Israel will grow so much so that in the time of Solomon, right, all of the nations that are Israel's compatriots in that time, their contemporaries, would come to him for wisdom. And the wealth of Israel would be praised. But here's what we need to know. What has always plagued Israel is not her loss of land or her national prestige, but her loss of favor with God because of her sin, because of their sin, both individually and corporately as a people. And so their national horn might be raised, right? In that we might see a national revival come, but there's still this need for a revival of the Spirit. Who would raise the horn of their spirit, their soul? And this is how Hannah's prayer becomes prophetic because the king that she's talking about is not just King David who would come and restore their fortunes for a time, but the King Jesus from the line of David who would come and restore them for all time by His blood. You see, you and I, we stand at a privileged juncture in history in that we can look backwards and piece these puzzle pieces together in Jesus. Jesus, who, like the nation of Israel, experienced the darkest of depths in his own death. Who, in that moment, prayed to the Lord, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pleading faithfully to the Lord, even in that last hour, even in the moment, when he believed himself to be forsaken. And yet three days later, the father raised the horn of his anointed. In raising Jesus victoriously from the dead, over Satan and over sin and over death. And that moment was the greatest revival in all of history from the depth of despair and sadness of a dead Messiah to the joy and peace and salvation and victory of a risen God. And brothers and sisters, it's through Jesus' revival that we have hope, not only of our individual revival, that we might experience an extraordinary measure of God's grace individually, but it's also through Him that we can hope for a corporate and glorious revival of all things to Him. And it starts with prayer. 
Revival is born in those waters, the waters that are filled by our tears and our pleading for God to come and do what only He can do to revive us again, to wake us up if we're sleepy, to save us if we're nominal or if we're far from Him. I like to think of revival this way, and, and I think it's a, a helpful illustration in case all of the words that have been given thus far have, have only muddied the waters. Uh, I'm lucky to have a, a father who I know um, and who has uh, been with me from almost day one. I was adopted, but almost day one. And um, there are times right, within my relationship with my father that um, I experienced him in a, in a more full measure. And here's what I mean by that. There are times when I would go away to play and I'm not in my father's presence. And in those moments, I knew that I was my father's son. In fact, there was a period um, from seventh grade to ninth grade where I lived in a boarding school. So I was gone quite, quite, a, quite a lot from my father, actually. And in those moments, I had no less knowledge that I was my father's son, but in those moments where I got to go home for the weekend and my dad got to hug me and say, son, I'm glad you're here. I got to experience what it means to be a son. I think we can think of revival in that way. We're no less sons and daughters of the living God when we're not experiencing revival. We're no less but there is something great about when the Father picks you up and you experience in greater measure what it means to be a son, what it means to be a daughter. And so that's what we're praying for in revival. We're praying that we'll experience what we already are just in extraordinary measure. And not just us, but those around us those who are nominal, those who are far from God, they would be made sons and daughters. So as we conclude, let's make sure we're clear on a few things because this is going to set us up for the remainder of the series. Number one, revival is an extraordinary outpouring of God's ordinary grace. That's all we're asking from Him. Number two, Revival is not something that we can schedule, plan, or strategize. In that sense, revival is like Narnia. You don't get back in the same way twice. We can't force our way in. We have to wait on God. But we don't wait passively. Revival can be invited by God's people, devoting themselves to particular means of revival. And we'll talk about more of those means over the coming weeks. Things that we can devote ourselves to in the hopes that revival will come. So we can invite revival by devoting ourselves to means of revival without depending on those means. But the chief means of revival, brothers and sisters, is the one that we've talked about this morning. Prayer. In the history of the church, there has been much prayer without revival, but there has never been revival without prayer. And so, 
it seems only fitting to conclude with a prayer, and I'd like to pray over us a prayer that Paul prays over the church at Ephesus because he's praying that they would experience what is revival. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, I'm going to read it and then we'll close. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.